You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Mark Lesser, who is the author of this book here, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. Also uh, the author of a couple other books, Less, Know Yourself, Forget Yourself, and of course, ZBA, or the Zen of Business Administration, which I think is is the name of your company, right? ZBA Associates? It is. It's funny, though, that um, I always, I still get a kick out of that because it started out as a joke. I was, this was um, many years ago, I was having lunch with the CEO of Chronicle Books and um, we sat down for lunch and he introduced me to the person that I didn't know as the, as having my ZBA degree. And because I do have an MBA degree and I've spent many years um, practicing Zen, I still do practice Zen and it kind of stuck and became the, the title of my first book. And also, I named my company ZBA Associates. And also, the, the way in which I got to know you was that you were CEO of uh, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, which came out of Google and which later brought uh, mindfulness training to executives in a wide range of businesses. Yeah, no, I that was a super important part of my life. I spent about five years inside of Google developing that program. And then I spent another five years building out the organization to spread that work around the world. And it was, um, it was a great experience. And so much of what I do now is sort of built on that experience. I learned so much. And and I also just getting to uh, work with Google engineers and co-teach with scientists. And so it was a great learning experience. Well, you've been in the business world longer than you were a Buddhist monk. And so you did spend a lot of time as a Buddhist monk. And you've argued that there are that these are not discongruent professions or occupations. You've argued that leadership, good leaders, exhibit a lot of the traits of mindfulness that are cultivated by Buddhist monks. And, and so I'm going to ask you a bit about your experience. But the one part, and this is the story which led you to pursue a business career, was that you were head chef and later head of a restaurant and then later the monastery in which the restaurant was located. And I used to work as a chef. And the idea of a mindful chef, it there's a little bit of tension there. I, I remember just working in, in restaurants, and these are some of the most high-pressured environments that there's super high stress. And, and I think if we were going to talk about an attentional state that is dominant in restaurants, it's really that of, of flow. And, uh, you know, flow is, is a very sort of a slightly different state of mind than mindfulness. And so I was wondering, and you describe in this book how you had a mindfulness form of state of mind that pervaded through the restaurant. So how is how did that occur? And tell us the story of how you decided to ultimately pursue a career in business. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I so appreciate about my experience in that Zen monastery kitchen, in the Tassara kitchen, was it's not at all what people tend to associate with mindfulness. This was not a calm and relaxing place. However, you know, what's super, in what's super interesting is that in this location, the meditation hall and the kitchen are like the two central buildings, and they're literally connected. And so it's really interesting, the, in a way, actually the aspiration and the practice of work as an expression of what's happening in one's meditation practice. But in this case, it's work with a tremendous amount of intensity. In fact, I, I thought I was waiting, Gregory, for you to use not, I didn't think you were going to say flow. I thought you were going to say fear or stress <laughs> or some other. Certainly on the TV shows, right? With the kitchen TV yeah. shows, that's sort of what you see. Yeah. So it's so interesting. There was something that experience 
of working in the kitchen was so pivotal in that I think there were, there was really good training in place, right? So I felt like I got trained really well, you know, in the basics of how to use a knife and how to take care of a knife and where things go. And the rule, there were lots of rules and lots of structure in this kitchen. And at the same time, there was a tremendous amount of playfulness and flexibility, both I'd say around the food that we were creating, but also in how people were relating to each other. There was, you know, fairly, especially I think in the summer where it was hot, you know, 100 degrees and where we were producing, expected to produce these gourmet quality vegetarian meals for 80 overnight guests, three meals a day. And it's one of those things when the bell rings, the food's supposed to be ready. But I think the fact that it was so immersed in a context of mindfulness practice and service and that we were aspiring to enter a state of, you know, selflessness and, and timelessness and playing with effort and effortlessness. And to me, all of those things are so relevant to whether you're, whether you're a surgeon or a teacher or a software engineer or whatever you're doing, I think we all aspire to, you know, bring out the best of ourselves in our work and to produce this kind of combination, right, of producing high quality product or services and at the same time, growing the character of the people that we're working with. So this to me, it's, it sounds, I know, incredibly aspirational. But that was my experience working and running. I was the, I spent a year as the, uh, well, I spent years first on the kitchen crew, just chopping vegetables. And I spent a year as a baker. And then I was the, the assistant to the head cook. And then I was the head cook. And it was just, there was something incredibly joyful about that combination of bringing that, that meditative and service sense along with the, this vision of producing a really, really great quality. Well, I'm interviewing another author named Rob Dunn, who has written a book about food, and he said he's he argues that the sharing of food releases oxytocin, and it's uh, an experience uh, similar to sex. <laughs> so, you know, there's something about sharing food. But you do recount a story about how when uh, one of the guests in the restaurant was an overnight guest, she was a business professor, and uh, she asked you, "What is the secret?" to this business. And you said the secret is that we don't think of it as, as a business. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and whether there are, are insights there that people in kind of more mainstream businesses can take advantage of. And, and then furthermore, when you did go off to get your MBA, did you find that the things that you had discovered as secrets to your success were things that were completely ignored in the teaching of business and in business schools? Did, did you find uh, it to be a bit of a, a culture clash or a struggle when you, you started learning about kind of the way business is supposed to be run? Yeah, I, it's funny that I remember that lunch many years ago. I think she was someone who, right, she taught at a business school in Monterey. And yeah, in some way at in this, the, the context of this place was around people wanting to find a way to to be more awake, more alive, more free in their lives. And in some way, the work, whether it was the work of the kitchen or the work of cleaning cabins or the work of accounting, was all contextualized as the practice of building character. Now, of course, 
it was also, and there were people who had to look at it from time to time, if not often as a business, right? I mean, it wasn't. But for the most part, if when you were working in the kitchen, you were there to practice and you were there to serve the guests and you were there to create great food. So there wasn't the, I think people often forget that businesses are primarily about caring for people, whether, you know, whatever it is, whether we're helping people with their finances or or creating products. Yeah, that I think what I meant by that and, and what I mean by that is I think letting go of that somehow business is primarily about creating wealth for me or and of course not that's a bad thing. I think it's we all I think should aspire to create goodness or cre- create some sense of w- wealth in a way. Uh, but the primary aim is around how can we take care of other what, what can we what product or service are we doing that is some in some way serving people so i think that's what i that's what i meant by my a bit of a smart alecky answer that um, people don't see it as a business and and when you went to off to business school did you find there was sort of a a difference between how you thought about running an operation and being a leader and what you were learning in, in school you know, it's funny. I think I, I tended to, um, I went to New York University Business School in the mid 80s, and there were just enough other sort of dropouts like me, people who were running nonprofits or artists. And there also there were, I gravitated toward, there were several professors who, um, especially ones who taught entrepreneurship. Uh, there were two entrepreneurship press professors who I really gravitated toward. And there, there was this I think a lot of sense around around creativity and service. And I felt like I learned a lot in even though I think the primary motive that I noticed around me was people wanting to get high paying jobs in on Wall Street. And that was interesting to watch that. There was a lot of energy around that. Wasn't I didn't know what I wanted to do other than I had some sense that I wanted to find a way to leverage business as a force for good. And I needed to learn the language and skills, which I did. I actually, even though I struggled in the finance classes and the marketing classes, but I learned how to write a business plan. And I learned how to think in the language and processes of developing and running a business. And shortly after I finished business school, I started my first company, a what grew into a really sizable greeting card calendar company called Brush Dance that I ran for 15 years. Now, I think there, certainly here in the Bay Area, there's been a surge in interest in topics around mindfulness, particularly among HR professionals. And there have been quite a few books and conferences. I think there's this annual event here in San Francisco called Wisdom 2.0. So I've, I've been to that a couple of times. And so a lot of times people think that this surge in interest is related to the high degree of stress that people are experiencing on the job, the nonstop immersion in work, the dissolution of kind of work-life uh, balance uh, and so forth. But your approach to work seems to contradict that in a way, right? Monasteries are places where work is something that is is spiritual, and and you described the metaphor of the allegory of the the bricklayer, and this you know a lot of people will say, oh, when you leave at five p.m., put your work behind you and don't think about your work until you go back at nine a.m. And this means that work is this thing that is separated from your life, different from your life, and has to be contained and put into a box. And I think you're offering up a a solution that's very different. 
is that just a fundamental misunderstanding of you know why it is that people are made stressful and anxious by their work? I think there's um, many pieces to it. I think that the stress and anxiety in work can be from there's a lot of politics and a lot of leaders that there are leaders that are stress makers and there are environments that those such leaders can make for really difficult, stressful environments. There are businesses that are innately stressful. I do some, I get to interact a little bit here and there with firefight, firefighters or, you know, first responders. And so it's not, these are not stress-free environments or, although I think of this surgeon, heart surgeon who called me, who, who said, it's not surgery that's stressful. It's working with other doctors that's stressful. So most of the stress mostly is other people and how we building those communication skills and, and developing our ability to be a bit more responsive and less reactive. And so all of that, the, that realm of becoming familiar, more and more familiar with our own tendencies and habits and proclivities and building those communication skills. It's amazing. And, and also in the midst of our busy lives of raising families or taking care of parents. And it's interesting, the it's a bit of a paradox because I find myself actually training quite a bit, quite a few leaders to be able to let go of their work because sometimes leaders get so embroiled in the environment that they come home and I hear I'm unable to be with my family. I'm, un I'm unable to let it go. So in some way, there is some important skill, some positive skill in being able to being training oneself to be able to engage and disengage. But I feel like what you were talking about was also if you step back and look at being more aligned with your core values so that there isn't that clear distinction between my work. I, I, it's, you know, there used to be an expression that when you, when you got to your office, you would leave your soul in the parking lot. So there in that more from that other perspective, it's like more alignment in terms of our, our more deeper values or purpose with our work. And to me, the ideal, and again, this is, in, in a lot of ways, this work is aspirational, but I think aspirational is good. Like I aspire to that my work not feel at all like work, that it just be something that is has great meaning for me. And it's a way that I'm, I get to make offer the things that I have to offer to help other people, that there can be real connection, that it can be an expression of humanity. An expression that I find I'm using a lot these days in the work world is compassionate accountability. This kind of interesting dichotomy of bringing humanity in, but at the same time, results matter, you know, and workplaces are not families. I describe them more like sports teams. You know, in fact, I was completely blissing out watching the Warriors last night. And there's such great sense of humanity and joy and love. And when players are not performing well, they get traded. And it's not, that's just the way it is. And it's the same in the business world. If we find another team that is making us a better offer, sometimes we, we leave the team that we're on and that's the world of work. Um, but there, but there is this sense of, developing both great compassion and caring and humanity and at the same time to develop a great sense of holding holding oneself and holding each other 
uh, accountable for results. Yeah, and I think that some of the more cynical perspectives on this new mindfulness and business movement, they would say, oh, these companies, they just want to get more work out of their employees. And so the best way to do that is to just add in this layer of stress management. We're going to treat them like crap and, and work them like crazy. And then we'll give them a little bit of meditation at the end of the day so that the poison goes down with a nice sweet aftertaste. Do you think that some of these initiatives are lipstick on pig? You talked about how the Daniel Goleman referenced the billion dollar uh, mistake because part of what you're doing is related to his work on emotional intelligence. And that's been around for a couple decades. And I think there was a belief that we would be teaching people emotional intelligence as an integral part of their education as their learning and development. We would evaluate people based on their emotional intelligence. We would recruit people based on emotional intelligence. And none of this really kind of took off. What was sort of the, the billion dollar mistake? Yeah, he describes that. That was in one of his follow-up books around emotional intelligence at work. I think the book is called Working with Emotional Intelligence. And yeah, he describes how after his first book came out, it seemed so clear and obvious, especially to large corporations, that training people in emotional intelligence would be a really positive thing in, in many ways for the success of the company. And almost all those emotional intelligence programs failed. And they failed because they tried to train emotional intelligence like you would you know, teach computer science or mathematics, that it was through reading, reading and talking. And what was missing was the somatic element or the what I sometimes think of as more the kind of presence or way of being and I think this is why like the mindfulness programs that I, I helped develop at Google and in other places were much, much more effective in that they, in a way, emotional intelligence sat on top of helping to train people's attention, to train people in listening more, more deeply and train people to in empathy and compassion. So doing actual guided meditations around seeing our commonality and wishing the best of, of others and practicing with being more and more aware of one's attention and one's emo emotions. Being able to, at Google, they would call it taking off your game face because there is a sense of stress and competition and needing, but being able to let that go and just be more a sense of developing that psychological safety that that term was made famous in a way by a study that Google did showing that sense of psychological safety was so core to building uh, building more effective teams. So yeah, I think I, there are many motivations for why companies do this work. And of course, there are, as you described, I'm sure there are people who do it for less than stellar or less than the most wholesome reasons. But for the most part, I find what I've noticed is that the people who tend to bring this work into their companies, that something changed in themselves, that they had an experience of seeing, oh, it's possible that my work life can be very different when I take a different approach to things. When I bring in my more sense of caring and humanity, wow, it, it that changes everything. And I would like to create this kind of environment in, in the place that I work. In fact, I remember the very first company that we worked with, it was the head, you know, a publicly traded company in which the head of strategic planning had just gotten back from a meditation retreat. 
And he was clear, like, I'm going to quit this organization unless work here is different. And he was like, and he had just heard about some of the work that we were doing inside of Google. And he called me and said, can we bring some of this mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs here? Because I'm, I, I can't, I just can't keep working in this old model that we have. We need a new model. And it was fabulous. It was just, I remember those, some of those early trainings where he brought in the CEO and the head of HR and the top 20, 30 leaders of the company. And again, I think so much of it was was just creating a safe space where people could talk more openly about. It's like in some way, I think most, I was going to say everyone, but most people want to work in environments that they feel are uplifting and supportive and fun if possible. But usually people feel like they can't say that, right? It'd be too dangerous to speak the truth about like, why is this place like this? And everyone, I I remember when we were uh, working with seeing about bringing mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs into the big, this huge international software company, SAP. And we would approach leaders at many different parts of the company and One after another, they would all say, yeah, I'm interested. I would really love to bring mindfulness and emotional intelligence. But all those other leaders and the company, they're they're not ready. And person after person would say exactly the same thing. And finally, we got them talking to each other. And they're like, really, this is we all are thinking the same thing. But we all have this idea that the company is too conservative or the company isn't ready. And SAP now, this has been enormous. There have been Probably, I think 10,000 people have gone through mindfulness and emotional intelligence trainings at SAP, and they're super uh, popular. And they've done a lot of accountability in the best that they can. It's not easy, but they really wanted to measure the return on investment. They've actually attached, in addition to the usual self-report metrics, they've really tried to capture some of the ways that mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs actually contribute to uh, bottom line. A lot of people think that uh, mindfulness and meditation is really um, a very uh, solitary activity and something which is pursued primarily for one's own personal psychological benefit. And maybe even they think it has a material benefit or lots of other downstream benefits. But you start your book with a quote from Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And your focus is very much on on the social aspects, on the kind of externalities, if you will, of a mindful leader and how a mindful leader can create a culture which is, is beneficial to everyone who, who participates in it. Is this a fundamental misunderstanding of mindfulness and meditation that it's really, you met in, when you talk about mindfulness and meditation in the book, you emphasize the social aspect and you say that part of a successful practice is doing it with other people and then holding each other accountable and believing that others are, are relying on you to help maintain this practice. Yeah. I mean, even I find myself more and more saying that, you know, meditation practice is a group sport, not an individual sport. And I noticed Google engineers and many people in business world would often come to me and say, I can't seem to really uh, get, figure out a way to get a, a daily meditation practice as part of my life. It's just too hard. And more and more, my responses are, you know, are you sitting by yourself? Yes. Try practicing with other people. And I will say that in my first 10 years of meditation practice, I don't know that I was ever 
in a room with less than 50 people. And there is something, we, we are such social creatures, and there's some real benefits. I'm waiting for, I'm not aware of any studies that have been done, but I'd love to see some studies of studying people who sit by themselves versus people who sit physically with other people and the effectiveness and benefits to the brain and other internal systems. But I think in some way, we, you know, mindfulness almost by definition is both developing one's uh, self-awareness, but it's for the benefit of helping others, for the benefit of positively inf influencing others. And it's often people leave out that, that other part, but to me, they're so, it's so integral uh, to the practice. You even used the term conspiracy, which is breathing together. The other thing I, I thought was insightful was you're talking about, people always talk about their practice, right? Their mindfulness practice and, and so forth. And you highlight that practice comes in, in two forms, right? There's the kind of off-field practice, the practice you do on non-game days, and then there's the actual playing, which is itself a form of practice. And so I think when you talk about meditation, you're not saying that do your meditation and then you're done. I think you're arguing that you're trying to develop a, a heightened sense of attention and awareness. You're trying to get out of autopilot and be conscious uh, and be aware that everything you do is a choice. This has a lot of similarities to existentialism and other philosophical traditions. I was thinking more it has a lot of similarities to athletes and sports. Yeah, of course. You know, right. Again, I, whatever your sport might be, that those hours and hours of solitary practice or really paying attention to your golf swing or your, your tennis swing or whatever your sport is, but then going out into the game where you get to, you know, so I, I think a little bit of the daily meditation practice as being as essential. Imagine trying to play with in real live sports without that practice, it's not going to go so well. But then also, there's so much learning and growth that happens. So for I like to think of people in the work world as to think of yourself as an athlete. And then you have, I think, a strong motivation for self-care and well, well-being, and also a strong motivation for practicing. And in this case, in some way, meditation practice could be also described as becoming more familiar with how we respond to fear and, and difficulty, the sense of what it feels like, what it feels like in the body to not be dissatisfied or needy, like a, a more sense of being settled with oneself and, and also cultivating a sense of our own connection with others. And then when we're actually in the game to express that and work with that as much as we can. Now, when we think of people who are meditators, we think of them as being very comfortable. But you emphasize that part of being a mindful leader is that you don't try to avoid discomfort, that you sail right into discomfort, and that a lot of the mechanisms that we have that are automatic are really about discomfort avoidance. And we create all the mechanisms. You use the analogy of the three apes. And of course, the nervous ape is the one that <laughs> occupies us for much of our lives. How is it that we should consciously seek out discomfort and address it and, and focus on how we react to uh, things which would normally make us nervous? Yeah, there's a few different realms here. Um, 
this nervous ape. This was a Google scientist who I got to. He was my student for a while, and then we started co-teaching. And he would use the expression that we humans are the descendants of the nervous apes, and that the apes that were chill and cool they all got killed. But the sense that it's part of our evolution to respond to fear, that we to respond to threats, that that we are here to stay alive, to be vigilant, to be constantly yeah. vigilant. I also think that this very potent inner critic that most humans have is also a kind of a response to, it's this inner vigilance about, do I look okay? Am I okay? Am I safe? All that inner judge, that inner critic that can get loud and mean to become, so part of it, I think, is becoming as familiar as we can, not a, instead of pushing all these, pushing the inner critic away or pushing away any sense of threat or anxieties, really inviting it all in and becoming familiar with it. What can we learn from it? So this is one, and not avoiding conflict, not avoiding the difficult relationships and conversations and learning to stay in there and learning some of the skills. But the other thing I was thinking of, Gregory, one of my, one of my favorite quotes from the business world is from Peter Senge's, it's funny, his book that he, it's now 30 years ago, The Fifth Discipline. And I remember the first time that I read that book, underlining, there's a statement where he says, the most important skill of a leader is staying with the discomfort of the, the place in between where you actually are and where you envision or where you aspire to be. And to me, there's something really profound about that one, that one statement, because what that means, even if you look at what your revenue is right now, and what your projected revenue is for the quarter or the year, it can be uncomfortable. Or if you look at how I am now at dealing with conflict and my aspiration to be better, or so with any of those inward qualities or building a team or building a company or developing new products, this there's some discomfort. And he calls it creative tension. I think I've changed it in my work to creative gaps. Uh, but these gaps in between, the discomfort of staying with these gaps. And there's so many strategies that we have for avoiding that discomfort. The most popular one is busyness. And this was the topic of my one of my earlier books called Less, Accomplishing More by Doing Less and Addressing the Religion of Busyness. But so much of busyness is avoiding discomfort, um, avoiding the discomfort of those gaps or avoiding the discomfort involved in, in change and impermanence. Well, and also avoiding conflict. You talk some of the exercises that you do, and I've observed these exercises, is just listening exercises, right? Teaching people to just listen in a way that is not reactive, that is not defensive, particularly listening to feedback that you might be getting from others. I, I was on a call the other day with, with someone and I was jokingly said, well, I want to give you a little feedback. And he immediately tensely told me that, <laughs> just hearing that word. And I, I think what followed was I said, you're really good at doing what you do. I just, but it was so, we're, this negativity bias is so powerful, right? The word feedback, the word performance review. So it's interesting being able to cultivate and become, so part of it is becoming familiar with our own negativity bias and then not being 
hard on ourselves about that negativity bias, which is super, super common. But just to be able to, I, I often say when things like that come up for me, I would do that too. If someone said, I want to give you a little feedback, it would automatically come up. Oh, uh oh, here it comes. To be able to say, oh, there I am. There I am doing that negativity bias thing that I'm always teaching other people to be careful of. There I am. Dude, it's happening again. How interesting. You use the term self-compassion. I've, I've seen this quite a bit here at, at Berkeley. And I think one's first impression when you hear this term is really, that's awfully narcissistic. Pray, you know, look in the mirror and think, wow, I'm special. I'm, I'm great and so forth. But I think what you're, you're emphasizing is that there, there is a, an approach to looking at yourself and to looking at others, which is, it's not so much eliminating feedback but rather eliminating fear of feedback and and you use this term you're perfect but there's plenty of room for improvement <laughs> and i think if, when i heard when i read that i think well, that that's exactly what a parent tells their child you're perfect but you're in need of improvement which sounds like a contradiction but it's a very healthy way of of looking at things yeah i think this is one of the i think the ability to hold both of those approaches so a little that's um you mentioned self-compassion, right? So in part, self-compassion can be an, an antidote to this kind of inner critic or the imposter syndrome. Or When we meet some people, we're like, man, I wish they had a, more of an inner critic. But I think your argument is that those people who are refuse to recognize the, the flaws in themselves, maybe they're not psychopaths. Maybe they're just people that, that haven't, don't have the courage to, to confront their imperfections. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting, the importance of both confidence and humility. Super interesting studies, right? The people who self-report as, as confidence in all kinds of tasks tend to, almost across the board, be less, less skilled, less effective than people who report less confidence and less effectiveness in certain areas. There's actually a lot to be said for finding that that sweet spot between confidence and humility. It's a little bit like what the quote, this is a quote by the Zen teacher Shinri Suzuki, right? You're perfect just as you are, which is, ah, what a beautiful description of confidence. And you could use a little improvement. So that's now, that's a nice description of humility, right? The humility of that we, we need improvement. And that the more that we can embody and feel both of those, the better learners we can be, the, the more curious we can be in this kind of, this art of acceptance and, and change at the same time. And the third practice of uh, a mindful leader in your book is this one, which I'm particularly fond of, which is don't be an expert. This is, for me, this is really easy. <laughs> I've spent my whole life trying to avoid being an expert, but I think you're saying that, look, we know that people are experts there. It's not we're not saying that you're not an expert, but really it's about a frame of mind of continual curiosity. How do you cultivate that? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I, I think it's a lot like what we were just talking about in terms of the humility, right? The, of course, I want my surgeon or my car mechanic to be experts in what they do, but, but I don't want them to be so caught by looking at things in a certain way that they don't have, that they're not able to respond more creatively, more openly when things are showing up in a way that they haven't seen before. But mostly what I'm talking about is in the realm of the realm of relationships, no one is an expert. I often share that. My wife thinks it's hilarious that I teach you know, emotional <laughs> intelligence. 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, we, those who can do and, and those who can't teach, right? Yeah. No, but I think it's endlessly fascinating and challenging and rewarding this realm of leadership and relationships. I think of the last, when I was running my last organization, when I had seven direct reports, and I, I remember realizing that half of my direct reports thought that I moved too quickly wasn't including enough people in my in my decision, or that I moved too quickly and wasn't including enough people in my decision making. The other half of the, my direct reports felt the opposite, that I moved too slowly and was including too many people in my decision making. And it was like, so it's, wow, this is fascinating that every person has their own perception and approach. And as a leader, I'm never going to be liked by everyone or loved by everyone. Despite, I remember looking at, we used to do these yearly or even twice yearly anonymous surveys. And I looked, I'd, and there used to be a lot of questions about how people, whether how effective people thought I was and was I supporting them in their personal and professional growth. And my scores were very imperfect. And it would be, it would be hard. It would be hard to look at, oh, everyone, everyone doesn't love me and everyone doesn't think I'm a great leader. This is very humbling and back out and go do my best and continue to have some of these difficult conversations. And it also made me realize that there's a lot of evidence that the more responsibility we take on in, in, in our roles, the, the less empathy we tend to have. And I realized that it was a message that I was glad to become aware of that I was not focusing enough on people's professional growth. The focus of a leader tends to be like, how am I going to pay payroll this week? And what am I going to do? What am I going to tell my board at the next meeting? And it can be easy to actually pay less attention to the humanness, the growth of the people that we're working with, despite that's what we're saying is super important to us. That story about feedback sounds a lot like my teaching evaluations. <laughs> too fast, too slow, too this, too that. But I think part of what you're um, arguing is that we need to work hard on having appropriate reactions to the stimulus in our environment, that we have to be more aware of the choices that we make. We have to move from this kind of small mind to the big mind. But is, is this something we can do all the time? Isn't there a finite amount of attention that we have and, and we have an attention budget you know, you talk about how, well, some things have to be on autopilot. We need some habit in our lives, right? I want to bring into this conversation that, um, you know, we haven't touched on, but I think it's become so crucial. Our own uh, biases and approach to how we approach, how inclusive we are, our own, how racist we can be, and a commitment to doing something about our racist history and racist systems, a commitment to doing something about the climate emergency that we're facing. So it's interesting. It's easy to, it's easy to just focus on these. And, and I think these issues of our day-to-day -day responses and, and our day-to-day -day performance in companies, we have to work there. But I think we all need to be citizens of our communities, citizens of our planet, and be, right, this is part of the conspiracy, is like, we've got some serious problems here that we need to pay attention to outside of whatever the day-to-day -day problem. We have to, of course, we have to focus on the day-to-day -day problems of our companies, 
but we also need to make space and room for focusing on what are we doing in our companies and outside of our companies to to make the world a more equitable and fair place for everyone. What are we doing inside and outside of our lives and companies to to pay attention to the environmental havoc that that our current systems are yeah, wreaking upon our lives? Aren't you just piling on more stress and, and more responsibilities? I mean, it's not yes. enough to simply pay your bills, but you have to solve the world's problems. You have to be mindful. You have to care about the people around you. I mean, even simple businesses, when they become customer focused, that can sometimes come at the expense of being employee focused. And if you're employee focused, that might come at the expense of being environmentally focused. So how, how do we, aren't you just like making even more demands on people when we hold people to such high standards? So I think of this, I want to move this more into uh, the head work, less head work and more heart work. So I think this is one of the real misunderstandings is that as though our attention and our hearts and our abilities are, are so limited and that we have to protect my time, protect our hearts. Don't make me look at these things. They're so hard and uncomfortable. And this is, you know, this quote by Peter Senge about the, the most important quality of a leader. I, I would say maybe it's the most important quality of a human is to open our hearts to the to the discomfort that there is when we look at not just the problems that we might have in our families, not just the problems we have in our companies, but to open the aperture, to open the frame and let it in and do what we can. It's, you know, I always think of the that silly, profound little story about the the person walking on the beach and throwing the starfish in one at a time and the beach is covered with them. And when the person says, what good are you doing? And, and the person says, well, tell that to this one starfish. It's like, we need to do both. We need to save that one starfish, but we also need to look at, well, what was it that caused all these starfish to be washing up on the shore here? And is there, what do I need to know? What do I need to learn about the larger causes to things as well? I feel like I've been throwing myself into reading as much as I can about especially right now, racism and climate change. And I'm in a few white awareness groups that have been really meaningful and potent to me. And, and at the same time, I, in some way, I find those things actually help me in looking at my day-to-day -day business problems a little differently. It's interesting to, when you open up your awareness to these larger problems, I think it also can shift a little bit in feeling a little less narrowed and siloed in how I'm looking at my own business strategy and my relationships with my people who work with me and my customers. You, you say that as a leader, you have to think, you have to listen, and you have to hold space. I think most people would think they know what you mean when you say you have to think and listen, although obviously it's much more complex. But what does it mean to hold space? Yeah, I think this is that it's, I think it's primarily not looking as though you care about people as a strategy, but really caring about, like it's a kind of heart, it's that heart work. It's that if I, you know, when I care about you, when I'm really curious about you as a human being, in addition, of course, in the work world, I care about your role and I care about, there's the accountability piece, but the compassion piece, the caring piece is just change, changes the nature of our relationship and changes the nature of the space that we can create together and how we can work together. So I think that's the holding space. Maybe it's also allowing for discomfort, allowing for doubts, 
allowing for people to disagree, for healthy conflict, for that, that again, going back to that term, that psychological safety, but real, that real sense of safety. And I think when you, you end your book, you talk about, you talk about choice. When, in your workshops, you work with a lot of people. And, and I think a lot of the people come in believing that they, they don't really have much choice. They have to do, they have to go to work and they have to take care of their families and they have to do all these things. And, and I think you want to bring out to them the idea that everything really is a, a choice and the things that they are doing on autopilot are their choices that were made. They may not have been made consciously. How do you bring that to the awareness without, you know, driving people crazy, right? I think it was, uh, you know, Borges wrote that story about how important it is that we you know, forget things. I think there's also this importance associated with just getting on autopilot. How do we balance the, the getting on autopilot and the, the conscious choice of our lives in order to avoid insanity, but also accept accountability? I think there's something profound about appreciating our lives, you know, and making our choices from there. And again, whether we're if we find ourselves, you know, it's, if we find ourselves in a toxic work environment, I, I often advise people to do what you can to get out of it. You, you know, if you try and change it, try and you can try and change it. You can try and work with your own state of mind. But sometimes we need to actually leave those kinds of environments. But that's that's a fairly kind of radical for for most of us. It's interesting to yeah to drop into the richness of our consciousness, the richness of our consciousness, the richness of being a human being. Even in the workplaces, especially in workplaces, we're doing things, doing things with other humans, and how can we support them? How can we be supported by them? Yeah. And playing in that realm of effort and effortlessness and richness and, appre- and appreciation without avoiding. It's not as a strategy to avoid difficulty or discomfort or change. So to me, it's, yeah. And again, I think. It's one of the things that I discovered in the Zen kitchen is the work, the, the stressful, demanding workplace as a great laboratory for learning and growth. And Mark, you're offering, you've been doing online. How has that <laughs> worked out? I mean, I've been to your, some of your in-person uh, workshops. How has it worked out online? I'm so surprised by how well it's worked out. It's funny how what the um, necessity is the mother of invention is something like that, that I think there was always this assumption that we can't do these kinds of, you can't teach mindfulness and emotional intelligence online, has to be in person. It turns out it works quite well. In fact, there's um, even been some reported benefits of, certainly there's the benefit of including people from all over the world, but the the break, I'm really surprised by the safety and connection that can get formed in these. In fact, I was actually, March of last year, I was in the middle of a, a one-month sort of program that I was teaching at the San Francisco Zen Center. And I can remember we were teaching a class that in the Zen Center dining room in which there may be 60 people. And it's this long, narrow dining room. And so there were maybe you know 10 or 15 rows of, of students and then when it all moved online, when the pandemic broke, there I was seeing all of these people face to face. It's like, oh, wow, this is, maybe this is more intimate. There could be room for more connection. So I've been playing in that realm of how can we use this space? How can we use this space, this technology to cultivate connection and intimacy? And it's been working surprisingly well. Yeah, I just did a, a four-week uh, seven practices of a mindful leader training. I've been doing those open to the public. 
I'm now developing a program called uh, Compassionate Accountability that I'll probably do later this year. I'm, I'm also doing a program that Spirit Rock is sponsoring, a Mindful Leadership Certification Program that was just, just announced. It's a five-month program that will meet starting in August for, I think it meets for a total of like seven full days, co-teaching it with a, a PhD computer scientist woman. And yeah, looking forward to that class. Great. In person. No, it's online. Online. Okay. Yes. Starting in, starting in August online. You're still, the world isn't quite ready yet. I think we're get, getting close. All right. Mark Lesser, thank you so much for joining me. A Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, the most recent book. And of course there's ZBA and also less. So thanks so much. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.